0: Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Updates on the Treatment of Bladder Cancer. And today's program is being um, offered to you in collaboration with the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, or BCAN, and with a number of other cancer organizations as well. And you will hear during the program um, from uh, the um the president of, the, of BCAN. Um, and um, t- today's program is really, um, it's, it's um, wonderful. We have a lot of people on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban and suburban areas. And you also, we have participants from Canada, India, Portugal and Venezuela. So it's actually a bit of a global call as well, actually. And um, we're delighted to have so many of you on the call today. Uh, today's program is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck & Company and the Diana Napoli Fund, and we thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers today, really the best of the best, and I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Song Chow, and Dr. Chow is a medical, medical oncologist with the Swedish Cancer Institute. And uh, Dr. Chow will be addressing overview of bladder cancer, including staging and grading, standard of care, the role of diagnostic technologies and precision medicine, targeted treatments, and emerging role of immunotherapy. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chow.
2: Thank you, Carter. Um, good morning, everyone. For the folks from the East Coast, good afternoon. Yeah, I'd first like to thank the organizer, in particular, Carter Masner from the Cancer Care Teleconference for inviting me to speak in this important event. I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to share with you current treatment for bladder cancer. First, let me start with the overview of bladder cancer. Bladder cancer is one of the most common cancers. The most common type of bladder cancer in the United States and Europe is urothelial carcinoma, which accounts for about... of all bladder cancers. Patients with bladder cancer often present with symptoms such as blood in the urine, pain with urination, and urinary frequency or urgency. For those reasons, they will be referred by a primary care provider to a urologist for evaluation. The diagnosis of bladder cancer is based on urine test, cystoscopy, and a biopsy. Treatment options for bladder cancer are dictated by stage and grade. Bladder cancer staging is based on how far the cancer has penetrated into the tissue of the bladder, whether the cancer involves the lymph nodes near the bladder, or whether the cancer has spread beyond the bladder or to the other organs. Grade, on the other hand, refers to how abnormal the cancer cells appear under the microscope. Bladder cancer are classified as either low-grade or high-grade. Low-grade cancers can recur but very rarely invade. High-grade cancer, however, are more likely to recur and become invasive. As first step of staging, urologists need to perform cystoscopy and surgically remove the tumor as much as possible. This procedure is called TURBT which stands for transurethal resection of the bladder tumor. An important goal of TURBT is to ascertain whether the cancer has invaded into the muscle layer of the bladder. If tumor does invade into the muscle layer, it is called—oh, I'm sorry—if the tumor does not invade into the muscle layer, it is called non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer. If the cancer has grown into the muscle layer of the bladder, it is called muscle-invasive bladder cancer. This distinction is very important since treatment choices for non-muscle-invasive disease and muscle-invasive disease are quite different. Approximately 70% of newly diagnosed bladder cancer are non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Initial treatment for non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer is TURBT, and this is often followed by additional therapy, including intravesical chemotherapy, or BCG. Intravesical means the medicine will be given by urology into the bladder. Intravesical chemotherapy, or BCG, reduces the chance of cancer recurrence. Cystoscopy, I'm sorry, cystectomy, which means surgical removal of the bladder, is reserved only for persistent or recurrent bladder cancer despite of TURBT intravesical treatment. On the other hand, the treatment for muscle-invasive bladder cancer is more aggressive because muscle-invasive bladder cancer is associated with a higher risk of metastasis. The most important treatment for muscle-invasive bladder cancer is surgical removal of the bladder, specifically radical cystectomy plus lymph node dissection. It should be noted that only approximately 50 percent of the patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer are cured by surgery alone. There have been numerous studies demonstrating treating muscle invasive bladder cancer with chemotherapy prior to cystectomy improves outcome and a chance of cure. Therefore, the combination of preoperative chemotherapy and surgery have been established as the standard care for muscle invasive bladder cancer. However, preoperative chemotherapy is reserved for the patients who are healthy enough to tolerate this treatment. In some cases, chemotherapy may be given after surgery instead of before surgery. We should note that patients generally have a better chance of tolerating and completing chemotherapy before the surgery rather than doing it after surgery. For patients who are not a candidate for surgery or decline surgery for any reason, concurrent chemotherapy and radiation or radiation alone can be considered. Chemotherapy and concurrent radiation should be performed after TURBT. Please keep in mind that risk of cancer relapse after concurrent chemotherapy and radiation may be higher than surgery. Therefore, the surgery is still considered the stand of care, ideally per, uh, in combination with preoperative chemotherapy. For staging of bladder cancer, we often need imaging tests. Imaging tests such as CT and MRI are used to detect not only abnormalities or masses along the urinary tract, including kidneys, ureters, and bladder, but also enlarged lymph nodes as well as metastases to other visceral organs. There is some evidence suggesting PET-CT may be better than CT or MRI alone in detecting bladder cancer metastases. Therefore, PET-CT may be considered in selected patients if metastases is suspected. If the bladder cancer has spread to multiple lymph nodes or other visceral organs, which we call the metastatic bladder cancer, systemic therapy will be the standard of care. Options of systemic therapy including chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and target therapy. The most commonly used chemotherapy regimen include cisplatin plus gemcitabine carboplatin plus gemcitabine, or a multi-drug regimen called MVAC, MVAC. For metastatic bladder cancer, chemotherapy is the most effective treatment, therefore it is recommended as a first-line option. A small percentage of patients with metastasis to the lymph nodes or even lung may be cured by chemotherapy. The most common side effects of chemotherapy include fatigue, increased risk of infections, bruising or breathing easily, hair loss, hearing change, nausea, vomiting, numbness tingling in the hands or feet, or sometimes the chematuria or blood in the urine. This side effect, those side effects are usually temporary and resolved after chemotherapy is completed. Since chemotherapy is associated with significant side effects, it is important to determine if a patient is fit enough for tolerate chemotherapy. Up to 50% of patients with advanced bladder cancer are not candidates candidate for platinum based chemotherapy regimen because of age or coexisting medical conditions. For those patients, immunotherapy will be more appropriate. Several immune checkpoint inhibitors are approved by FDA for treatment of advanced bladder cancer. Immunotherapy works through directly activating patients' immune system to attack cancer cells. Those immune checkpoint inhibitors are effective in only about 20 to 30 percent of patients. However, among those who do respond to immunotherapy, we have observed a very durable response in some patients, sometimes up to years. Side effects of immune checkpoint inhibitors are often related to overly active immune system. The most common side effects including fatigue, skin rash, and diarrhea. Other less common side effects include abnormal thyroid function, inflammation of the lungs, abnormal liver function or hepatitis, pancreatitis, or abnormal pituitary gland function, and very rarely inflammation of the heart muscle can occur. Interestingly, we have also observed that those patients who experience immune-related side effects have much better chance of responding to immunotherapy than those who do not. At present, immune checkpoint inhibitors has been only approved for treatment of metastatic bladder cancer by FDA. However, there are a number of ongoing clinical trials investigating if they would improve outcome in early-stage bladder cancer as well. And those include muscle-invasive bladder cancer before or after surgery or non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer not responding well to intravesical BCG or chemotherapy. There have been preliminary data from clinical trials showing promos- pr- promising results of immune checkpoint inhibitors in early-stage bladder cancer. I expect immune checkpoint inhibitors will become available for patients with early-stage bladder cancer in the near future. Please stay tuned. For the last few minutes, I would like to give you a brief review of target therapy. I believe Dr. Koshkin will give you additional insight in this aspect. Target therapy is a class of drug targeting specific genes or proteins that contribute to cancer growth. The rationale of such treatment is to suppress growth and spread of cancer cells while minimizing the harm to the normal cells. Erdofetinib is a new drug that Recently approved by FDA in April of this year. It is the most, uh, it is the first target therapy approved by FDA for metastatic bladder cancer. It is given orally and is approved to treat patients whose cancer has progressed on chemotherapy and immunotherapy. It is important to know that this drug is approved only to treat patients patient with mutations in genes called FGFR3 or FGFR2. There is a specific FDA-approved com- companion test to find out who may bear these mutations and benefit from this treatment. Other genetic alterations have been identified in bladder cancer. Drug targeting those tr- mutations are currently being investigated in a clinical trial. Some of them have shown promising results. One example is It It is targeted protein called nectin 4 and this drug has been currently submitted to FDA for accelerated approval for treatment uh, for advanced bladder cancer. I think infortnip would be available within the coming year for our patient. The other example is sustitutumab. Give a This is a drug targeting a protein that is highly expressed in most bladder cancer. It is currently being investigated in a phase two clinical trial. I'll wrap up my talk with a few t- take home messages. First, treatment approach of bladder cancer is determined based on stage and the presence of muscle invasive disease. Second, stand up care for localized muscle invasive bladder cancer is pre chemotherapy followed by surgical removal of the bladder. Third, chemotherapy is a first-line choice for advanced or metastatic bladder cancer. For those who are not fit for chemotherapy, immunotherapy is a good option. Fourth, toxic therapy such as erdafernib may benefit from pati- for, may benefit a patient with specific mutations. Last but not least, all the treatments mentioned here are a result of decade-long vigorous research and a clinical trial. I thank all the patients who have participated in these trials and helped us move closer to ultimate goal of conquering this difficult disease. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your attention.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Chow. That was really wonderful. Actually, um, I have to say that um, just a wonderful overview of of uh, cancer, and then also just um, uh, giving people, summing up with some take-home points to people to remember. And I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, but thanks for organizing this and um, and starting off and, and setting a context for today's program. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Vadim Koshkin. Dr. Koshkin is a genitourinary medical oncologist, UCSF Medical Center, Assistant Professor of Medicine, UCSF School of Medicine. And uh, Dr. Koshkin is going to be addressing New treatment approaches, predicting response to treatment, clinical trial updates, how research increases treatment options, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns and follow up care. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Koshkin.
3: Okay, thank you so much, Carolyn, and uh, that was a great and uh, very comprehensive. review our Dr. Zhao earlier, um, and my task now is to address uh, the new developments in uh, treatment of bladder cancer. And uh, over the last several years, this really has been a, a very um, exciting field with many um, uh, new and interesting treatment options and various research developments. Um, I would say the biggest new treatment approach introduced in bladder cancer over the last Five to ten years have been immunotherapy treatments with uh, drugs known as checkpoint inhibitors. And Dr. Zhao uh, uh, did touch on this in his talk. Um, but uh, currently, these drugs uh, are approved in metastatic bladder cancer. Uh, and uh, the first approval was in 2016, so had about you know three to four years of experience with these drugs now, uh, and there are now five different agents approved. Uh, these are uh, drugs that may be familiar to some patients, um, uh, both from um, just maybe being exposed to them, but also from uh, f- uh, from advertising. And um, these include drugs like pembrolizumab or Keytruda. Uh, um, and also atezolizumab or tcentric, those are probably the two most common ones used in bladder cancer. And then uh, additionally, there are other drugs like nivolumab, avalumab, and dervalumab. Um These are, uh, although approved only in metastatic disease right now, are increasingly used in clinical trials uh, of earlier-stage disease, as Dr. Zhao addressed as well. So this includes in muscle-invasive disease as systemic therapy prior to intended surgery, Um, or uh, additionally in non-muscle invasive disease. And um, these approaches currently are still experimental in both those settings. Um, It's only available in clinical trials, but um, I I agree with Dr. Zhao that uh, likely within the next several years, just based on sort of the pretty promising uh, data and outcomes that we've seen in, in clinical trials of these agents for earlier stage disease, uh, that um, they will probably be used more and more and, and overall um, the uh, number of patients with bladder cancer who are eligible to be treated with immunotherapy drugs will probably be expanding in the next several years. The other major important recent developments uh, include again the introduction of targeted agents. The first targeted agent approved um, in bladder cancer uh, was ErdafitNib as Dr. Zhao addressed. Um, this drug or other drugs like it, um, the reason they're called targeted agents is because they target something that is specific to to the cancer cells that differentiates them from the rest of the body, from the normal cells. And uh, this could be something like a uh, mutation or a group of mutation that the cancer cells have, but the, the rest of the body does not, uh, or a certain specific feature of, of, of the cancer cells that make them more easily targetable. Uh, as I mentioned, erdofitinib became the first targeted agent to gain FDA approval in metastatic bladder cancer just uh, a few months ago, in April of uh, 2019. Uh, it was approved in bladder cancer patients with metastatic disease who had had disease progression on prior uh, chemotherapy and also had to have um uh certain uh mutations in the fibroblast growth factor receptor known as FGFR. Uh this accounts for about 20% of metastatic uh bladder cancer patients, so it's it's not an option for for all bladder cancer patients, but for for a significant minority. And additionally, uh in certain groups of of bladder can of, of urothelial cancer patients, I should say, uh, this percentage is higher. So, uh, in patients with what we call upper tract disease, so uh, cancer of, of um, uh, the ureters or uh, ureterocele, cancer of the ureters or the kidneys, for instance, um, uh, this percentage is more closer to 40% of patients who who have these mutations and therefore potentially uh, can be treated with this drug. Um, in terms of predicting responses to treatment and to specific treatments. Uh, I would say a lot more work remains to be done in this space although although we have made some progress. Right now probably the best way of predicting response or, or the most the, the most promising I should say uh biomarker are these uh mutations in the fibroblast growth factor receptor or F J F R. Um and the, uh, these mutations of course as I just mentioned identify patients who potentially will respond to ertapitinib or uh, similar drugs with a similar mechanism of action that are cl- uh, currently in clinical trials. Uh, for this reason, um, currently it, it is recommended that all patients with metastatic bladder cancer um, undergo what we call sequencing of their tumor. So, um, so it's a type of analysis of the tumor to identify um, potential mutations that, that may be targetable, that may make... Um, this particular t- tumor vulnerable to certain drugs, in other words. Uh the only approved drug, as I mentioned, is ertofitnib. Approved meaning that um it's uh it can be given in in a- any um sort of situation for patients who are eligible and, and you don't do not need to be on a clinical trial for it. But there are potentially other mutations that we can also target um with agents available in clinical trials. Um aside from that I would say the predictive markers of bladder cancer are um um well currently remain a work in progress. Um there are some markers that are being looked at for uh, as potentially predictive of response to immunotherapy. One such um marker is called uh, uh PDL1 expression. Um and this is sometimes used to make clinical decisions as well um, but really it is i would say it is not a great marker because although patients with high pdl1 expression so patients whose tumors have high pdl1 expression are more likely to respond to immunotherapy drugs like checkpoint inhibitors many patients with low pdl1 expression still respond to immunotherapy as well um, so much more work remains to be to be done in that space and it's actually an active um a very active area of, of research investigation, both at my center and many other places. Um, I wanna um touch on updates from recent major um clinical trials that uh that potentially will change practice in the near future as well. And that's that's something that, that Doctor Zhao addressed briefly as well. Um I would say the most promising agent that's uh, that that is another targeted agent that is currently not yet FDA approved but um, has very promising data is uh, avidotin. This is, um, as I mentioned, a targeted agent, an antibody drug conjugate is what we call this class of drugs. Um, so what what it is is um, it's sort of like a targeted uh, a form of targeted chemotherapy, I would say. So what I mean by that is that it is comprised of an antibody. Antibody is a protein designed to target specific proteins in the body. And that antibody is linked to the actual active part of the drug, um, and, uh, which, which is a chemotherapy drug. So this particular antibody, that's the infortimab part of infortimab, the dotin, targets um, a specific protein that's expressed on bladder cancer cells, uh, and less so in other cells in the body. It's called Nectin 4. And um, so when when patients are given this drug as an infusion, these uh, the um, this compound acts as as, uh, as a targeted missile. Um, it seeks out cells expressing this specific protein, which happen to be bladder cancer cells. It is internalized by those cells, and then the warhead part of the drug, the vedotin part, which is the chemotherapy, is released and and destroys the cell. And uh, because it it, uh, preferentially targets bladder cancer cells specifically, um, it uh, it can lead to the reduction of of the tumor bulk, of the cancer bulk, and not cause as, as, as many other side effects as traditional chemotherapy does. As I mentioned, this drug is not yet approved, um, so not, not available for wide use yet. But um, the clinical trial um, of this drug that was presented, um, that the data from which was presented just a few months ago at, at the major oncology meeting, was very promising. Uh, it showed that many patients with metastatic bladder cancer who were previously treated with chemotherapy and then also with immunotherapy and unfortunately progressed or had worsening disease on both both those therapies when they were treated with this drug many had very good responses so while it's um, it's not possible to say for sure that will be that it will be approved uh, because the uh, the FDA the Food and Drug Administration basically has to uh, go over all the data from that clinical trial and really kind of confirm that uh, it works as well as, uh, as uh, um, the data that was presented, but um, given, the, again, significant need in this patient population for new drugs, uh, most uh, um, doctors who treat bladder cancer patients, like myself and Dr. Zhao and, and others, uh, expect that it probably will be approved, and that approval may happen uh, fairly soon, I mean, with, within months. Um there is another similar targeted agent uh with another uh very unpronounceable name called sicituzumab govetekin or sg for short um that uh has a similar mechanism of action but targets a different protein uh it also has promising data um but is not as far along in its development as in fortumavodotin um still it's it's exciting to have you know not not just one but but several potential new options and and really uh goes a long way to um to showcase how how active research has been recently in um in bladder and urothelial cancer specifically to to, to produce these new drugs um, in uh in recent years, as I mentioned, this has been a very active space with many new developments. Um, really after m- many prior years of stagnation where really the only thing that was available was chemotherapy. So it's very, very exciting to have to have these, these many new options. There are many other important trials that are currently um, ongoing and have either finished enrolling patients and are sort of awaiting their, their results or, or that are still enrolling. And so um, it's very possible that in the near future, uh, the standard of care uh potentially uh will will change further and in fact uh, again most mo- most uh doctors and clinicians who treat bladder cancer patients anticipate that um, what what we're doing the the drugs that we're giving to patients now will be much different uh 2-3 years from now and uh, both in terms of the combinations and the sequences and and things like that um one important recent trial that also suggested um potentially new developments, is that, um, well, to, to go back to something Dr. Zhao mentioned, is that uh, currently the standard of care for uh, for metastatic uh, bladder cancer is, uh, is chemotherapy as the first-line treatment for most patients. There have been several trials now investigating combinations of chemotherapy and immunotherapy, since we know that, that both work pretty well, but but currently, the standard of care is to sequence them, so to give one after the other. But there are a number of trials ongoing that give them together up front to see if there are basically better and increased responses. And uh, at a recent meeting just just a few weeks ago, the big um, European oncology meeting, one of these trials presented the very preliminary data suggesting that there may be early benefit of combining chemotherapy and immunotherapy as the first treatment option for metastatic bladder cancer. That data um, is still um, uh, fairly immature. What I mean by that is, is that uh, we need more time to see sort of longer-term effects, but it's, it's certainly pretty promising and suggests that, again, the standard of care may change soon. And finally, I'll just wrap up by um, addressing some of the key questions that are good to ask your healthcare team. Um, I would say that, in general, it's, it's great to ask as many, as many questions as possible because, because this is um, a very uh, complex field and, moreover, a very dynamic field where things are changing rapidly. Um, it's very important to, um, for, for the patient and family to really gain the understanding of, of the treatment that's being offered, its side effects, logistics of how it's given, and, and just generally what to expect. It's very important to understand what the goal of this treatment is is it given um, for as a curative intent, as in to get rid of cancer completely, or is it something that uh, will um, uh, be able to drive the cancer back, but potentially not get rid of it completely, something called a palliative treatment? Um, and then I would say that most patients do ask questions that are important to them, and therefore these are important questions. So... Um, I think one of the most important roles that uh, that physicians and doctors have in general, who who treat cancer patients, is to be able to provide education to patients and family members of uh, sort of what they're going through and, and and what to expect. And so, so again, I just reiterate, it's it's, it's important to ask uh, ask as many questions as possible and uh, and uh, to you know try to get them answered. And I'll just uh, wrap up with that.
1: Oh Well, thank you very much, Dr. Koshkin. That was really very, again, very informative and um, really lots of information for people in terms of um, the new treatments that are available and also um, things that they should be talking to their healthcare team about questions to ask and to be very much aware of what's happening that's new in the field as well. So thank you. Um, and I think being on programs like this, any way that you can keep getting new information is really important to everybody on the call. So thank you. And I know there be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Miss Diana Burden. Miss Burden is a dietitian. She's an oncology dietitian with the Mi- Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Miss Burden is going to be addressing, addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program
4: over to my esteemed colleague, Miss Burden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, just to start with, um, nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the tolerance to, your tolerance to treatment, but also just providing you the energy to do the things you enjoy. Uh, your diet might be modified during um, your treatment, even after your treatment, just depending on if you're experiencing any side effects. Some potential side effects, we've heard some earlier here in the presentation, but um, may include um, some such as decreased appetite, changes in taste and smell, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and fatigue. But, during your course of treatment, your nutritional um, needs may increase just depending if you have a surgical um, procedure, if you have radiation, if you have any other challenges that might be impacting um your nutritional goals, then your dietitian can definitely help um, help you come up with a plan that's individual for your needs now um if you're not able to meet your nutritional goals, it can impact your overall health. It might even result in a delay in treatment. so it's important to be in touch with your healthcare team and a dietitian can h- sit with you, help um, you understand your nutritional goals. This includes um, calories, protein, your fluid needs, and any information on modifying your diet, like I said earlier, some of the side effects that may um, present themselves, there are some modifications we can make to your diet to help you tolerate eating. Um, more so but something I always hear from patients is oh I don't need to worry about it if I lose some weight I'm overweight Um, but it's important to realize when you're going through cancer treatment your body's in a different situation than somebody who's not going through cancer treatment and so losing weight can impact you in a different way Um, Even if you are overweight, you can actually become malnourished, It's um, something that we don't really hear a lot about in the media, but it is very much possible. And so whenever you are losing weight quickly and you're going under treatment, you actually can lose more muscle than you realize, and that can impact your level of energy, your endurance, and actually increase the fatigue you may experience. Um, there are some medications that can help address um, side effects that you might experience, so always talk with your health, health care team. Keep them um, involved in what's going on with you. Please tell them sooner than later. That way they can help um, we can all help to um, help you feel better more quickly. Um, so if you are experiencing side effects when eating, try keeping a record of things that might give you trouble, and that'll also help us help you um, figure out maybe what be, may be going on. But dehydration is something that we don't really talk a lot about, but it's very present um, in the oncology population. And it can actually make some of the symptoms worse. So staying hydrated is very, very important. If your appetite's less, then oftentimes you're not going to drink as much. So dehydration can actually amplify the nausea, fatigue, can make you feel dizzy and lightheaded. And just as a reminder, fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature. Um, Most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day, but some treatments can actually increase your fluid intake. So talking with your team about that is important. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to your care and supporting you during this time. So please reach out to them and allow them to support you during your care. Thank you so much for letting me be part of today's presentation. I'll pass the line back over to Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. and That was really wonderful, actually. Um, and always people are interested in how they're going to, what they do about eating and also um, with fluid intake, so that's really uh, a wonderful presentation, so thanks a lot. And. um and Our next speaker is um, Dr. Stephanie Chisholm, and Dr. Chisholm is uh, Director of Education and Research at the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN, and she'll be addressing um, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network's free Network programs, and she also has been just a wonderful person to work with on this particular program and on all of our bladder cancer programs that we do going forward in, in the back as well, <laughs> the ones we've done previously as well. So I now want to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chisholm.
5: Thank you, Carolyn, so much. I really appreciate it. Obviously, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network only deals with bladder cancer, and we've been around since 2005, and we have a full spectrum of resources that touch on everything that you heard about today. And so I really would encourage people to visit our website, wbcan.org, O R G and take a look at some of the different things that are there everything from helping you understand your disease with our bladder cancer basics to videos that we have specifically focused on nutrition and bladder cancer including some recipes we have videos as well as fact sheets on immunotherapies and we have a number of webinars addressing so many issues relating to quality of life as well as the diagnosis and treatment of bladder cancer, including some upcoming webinars that will deal specifically with targeted populations such as the military and women. So I encourage people to visit and sign up for any of those free resources. We do a lot of awareness walks because we hear on a regular basis that most patients tell us, I didn't know you could get cancer in your bladder until my doctor told me that's what I had. And so we're really trying to raise the bar of awareness around the country, and we have walks in over 26 cities scheduled for 2020, including one at the end of 2019 in Miami, which will be a first for us down there in November. So we're really looking forward to helping you understand your bladder cancer journey. If there are concerns that you have and you want to talk to somebody who really literally does know what you're going through, please feel free to reach out to us. You can do that through our website, and we can connect you with one of our survivor survivor volunteers who is there to help explain what they were thinking when they went through their treatment and give you some suggestions for questions you might want to ask. So we have a wealth of resources, and we encourage everybody to visit us. Remember it's W B C excuse me, w dot B C A N dot org as in Beacon of Hope.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chisholm. That was really wonderful and a wonderful resource for people who may not have used this resource and some of you are using it already, but more information about that resource, so terrific. Thank you so much. Um, And I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care before we then take your questions. So please start to get your questions um, ready, so we'll take them shortly. Um, So I'm going to say a few words about Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national organization, um, and we provide a host of psychosocial services, which means helping people with the practical, emotional, and social aspects of dealing with all cancers, including bladder cancer as well. And what what that means is that we do offer, for example, we do offer the chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about any question or concern you may have. We offer practical and financial assistance. We have a co-payment assistance program. Um, We also um, have a number of support groups, both on the telephone and online, and certainly have groups for caregivers as well. Um, And those those programs are actually very popular. I, I think we have over 138 online support groups for many different Types of cancers, including bladder cancer, and also in terms of different ages. So, for young adults, for older adults, for middle-aged adults, um, for um, for caregivers, um, for people of many different backgrounds coping with different types of of cancer. Um, so, there is something for everyone. And if and if you like an online support group, which allows you to kind of post or listen to messages. Um, You know, throughout the day, it's good for our international participants as well. Of course, it's a really wonderful resource. There is no time, or um, there's no time constraint, and these are all moderated by a professional oncology social worker. Um, We also um, have a cancer care for kids program in which we help children who live in families where there is a cancer diagnosis, bladder cancer, any type of cancer, and indeed. Um, many children and teens really have a hard time understanding and families have a difficult time often explaining to children um, it, what is going on, why things perhaps have changed a bit in the family, and so those are really very very important program as well. And uh, we have, of course, these workshops that we offer quite regularly on different types of cancers as well as on different topics. Um, so um, I'll mention some of those at the end of the program as well. So now we do have time for questions and I want to ask, uh, have you all queue up and ask questions. I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to explain to you how to queue up and ask a question, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get to your question at the end of the call, I'll tell you how to get your questions
0: answered. How's that? So, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is open.
2: Hi. According to Cure magazine, a Dr. Veneta Leckenspah from Medical College of Georgia and Augusta University claims that bladder cancer is considered. One of the most expensive concerns to create as clinically managed from diagnosis to final outcome. Why is it so expensive? Is it because of the constant testing? And what is the prognosis of bladder cancer?
1: Okay. Well, thank you. Well, Emil, good to have you on the call, and thank you for that really good questions. A couple of questions here. So um, I'm going to ask our two medical oncologists to address that question in a general way. Some of the, some parts of your question probably need to be addressed with someone's um, treating healthcare team. But um, Dr. Chow, would you like to begin? Um, Chow, would you like to begin with that uh, part of that question, anyway?
2: Yeah. Um, I think. Well, the cost. Uh, for healthcare has always been a an important topic for uh, any cancer type and uh i think a bladder cancer um does present a very a big challenge when present with uh, uh you know symptoms that related to the cancer and require frequent uh visit to a urologist and uh uh its procedures i think that does uh, uh increase uh a significantly financial burden to the to the patient and uh when it comes to systemic treatment that I am more familiar with uh and I don't think the chemotherapy and the immunotherapy the cost is any more than uh what we've seen in other type of cancer, for example lung uh breast or um, a colon cancer so um uh I think that's my take and then in, in terms of prognosis, it's pretty much determined as the treatment it's pretty much determined uh by the stage of the cancer. And in early stage prost- uh bladder cancer that we um you know are prim- primarily managed by a urologist and uh some of them actually will be cured um by certain uh and including uh T R B T and uh uh you know intravesical chemotherapy or BCG and they will never need to uh, come to medical oncologist for consultation. Uh, but when it comes to prognosis for muscle-invasive bladder cancer, that will require involvement of medical oncologists or even more advanced stage metastatic uh, bladder cancer. And that is a very different story because, uh, as I mentioned, only 50%, a little bit more than 50% uh patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer would be cured even uh, with uh, preoperative chemotherapy followed by surgery. And uh, hopefully we can improve that by incorporating uh immunotherapy uh, in the future and uh for metastatic bladder cancer it is extremely difficult to cure and uh we rarely see chemotherapy uh eventually re- uh, uh result in a complete remission but most patients uh would not um, consider a cure uh, most of con- most of the disease would not be considered curable uh with our current uh, standard of care
3: Thank you. Um and Dr. Costa, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um yeah, so uh, again, very good couple of questions. I um uh, to answer them sequentially, then I want to uh, mostly second what uh, Dr. Zhao said um in regards to it being the the most expensive cancer to treat from from um diagnosis onwards. There there is a lot of literature um Suggesting that, and uh, I agree with Dr. Zhao that it is mostly driven by um, a variety of, of procedures, and procedures have to be done repeatedly, uh, specifically for uh, earlier stages of disease and non-muscle invasive um, bladder cancer. In regards to prognosis, that that is a very important question, and and a very um, uh, important question, of course, to to always ask your your provider and your uh, your treating physician um but it is not a question that can be answered generally for the disease as a whole it it depends on a whole v- variety of factors some of which are uh tumor specific or well cancer specific so to say and that's uh and that is driven by um, stage and extent of disease, like like um, doctor, uh, Dr. Dr. Zhao addressed, as well as uh, potentially other um, uh, medical uh, history that the patient may have, um, and then of course it is uh, it is driven by characteristics of the of the patient as well, sort of what therapies they would be um, eligible for and, and and things like that. So so very important question I would say to ask on an individual basis for um, you know a, a, a provider that that is that is familiar to you and your specific case.
1: And is this, uh, although some diseases may not be uh, immediately cured, and we have a lot of of course chronic diseases out there, are these treat- diseases so treatable, I guess, is the question is, are there various treatments for bladder cancer that make a difference as well? So put, does it put into a category of being a bit of a, uh, it's it's a disease that maybe at some point can't be cured but can be treated? Is that is that a fair thing to say?
3: uh that that is absolutely a fair thing to say yes for um uh up, up to a certain stage of disease um and certainly for non muscle invasive and muscle invasive uh we're we're at a point where with a with a variety of treatments the cancer can be eliminated altogether. Once you get to the, the metastatic stage, sort of where it's spread outside the bladder, that's considerably more difficult as Dr. Zhao mentioned, but but certainly still very, very treatable. Um and um there are a variety of treatment options, both the standard of care, like chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and a variety of new agents and new drugs that are uh that will probably be coming online soon and also um also a lot of um really exciting clinical trials that, that really Justice this disease is much more treatable um, now than it was even a short time ago, like five to ten years ago
1: so thank you and thanks very much for, for saying that. and I think and I would the great questions emil and I think so, some parts that really do go back to of course all of it goes back to your treating healthcare team, just in terms of your specific um, situation for each person that's really um, that these are we're giving some general information here, but of course, um we do hope you'll take information back to Treating Healthcare Team for what you learned today so that you can actually be more you'll be more informed, perhaps asking more informed questions of, of your healthcare team. So thank you, um, our speakers. Um so um so the other question is so um So this is a question, um I'll ask Dr. Koshkin this question. I am currently seeing a bladder cancer expert but have some reservations about our discussions. Should I seek a second opinion? Then you commented just seeking a second opinion when how when what um, i
3: Yes. I uh I am always this is a great question first of all again and I, I am I am always very supportive of of uh patients seeking second opinions that's both uh for patients who um come to me for second opinions from from elsewhere and also also my own patients who uh, who uh seek a second opinion somewhere else um I think again this is a uh complex disease and a, a complex um, treatment space and so um having more than one expert weigh in uh never hurts um, i um i I think that in certain situations patients may feel that um uh by seeking a second opinion they're somehow invalidating the the primary opinion like the the first opinion that they got from from the first doctor that they saw and and maybe you know reluctant to to offend that physician um and and so not so to not seek a second opinion for that reason um i I would say that um i mean in general, no doctor should uh really feel feel slighted by um by um by their patient you know uh also asking questions of other physicians because again, it's a, it's a complicated space i I think there are many um ways to approach it and sometimes different ways to approach it, and so um Getting additional opinions um, never hurts. I will say that, that in certain situations, um, you know, you can overdo this a bit to the extent that uh, seeking multiple opinions actually delays care. So, um I think I, I think that situation is is maybe a little bit more precarious where you know if if you're if if someone's waiting several weeks to see you know a world renowned expert because um you know they had already seen uh, let's say two other people uh and so, so I would just be careful in a situation like that where uh, sometimes time is of the essence to start treatment as soon as possible. But, but aside from that, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's it's it, it's ever wrong really to to seek a second opinion. Excellent,
1: thank you. And Dr. Zhao, yeah. your
2: thoughts as well, Dr. Yeah, Chau? yeah, I, I completely agree with Dr. Koshkin's comment. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's important for patient to feel assured and to feel. Uh, that uh, uh, all the recommendations by medical oncologists can be validated by uh, uh, whoever they they would like to see uh, uh, as a second opinion. And also, uh, it does open the door uh, to... uh, you know, maybe more options. Uh, for example, clinical trials that uh, may or may not be available at one place, but are available in a different co- uh, institute. As as we have multiple, uh, you know, major hospitals in Seattle, including uh, the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, we do offer different uh, trials uh, when when it comes to uh, different disease. And uh, so that will certainly uh, be a plus uh, when they. Uh, have the chance uh, and the, to discuss options, uh, but I do agree that uh, it would not be ideal to to delay the treatment uh, if if they have to wait weeks or months to to see a second opinion. And I think uh, my recommendation would be they make the best uh, decision they can to to get their treatment started and then you know, take a second opinion uh, if they are able. But uh, again, um, hopefully, um, you know, a patient can make a more informed decision by seeing multiple. Uh, to doctors or uh, more uh, if they feel necessary uh, prior to uh, starting the treatment. Um, yeah.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. And we have another telephone question. Um, Crystal?
0: Thank you. And our question comes from Keith F. Your line is open. Please check that your line is not on mute.
2: I'm sorry. Um, yes, my question is... How do you approach your provider team regarding these targeted agents that you were describing earlier in the presentation? That's
1: an excellent question. Thank you. Um Dr. Zhao, do you want to start with that one?
2: Um I I guess I, I needed just a, a little bit of clarification from the uh, from the um, from the person who asked the question. Uh is this uh, are you asking if, if the patient uh, what kind of question the patient should should bring to the to the doctor uh, regarding uh, the discussion of the uh, targeted therapy? Is that is that what you're asking? Um, for uh, example, for non-muscle invasive cancer, um, the um, my provider team never discussed targeted agents. Oh, okay. Now I understand. Okay. Well, um, we 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 probably uh, need first to determine if a patient uh, has muscle invasive bladder cancer or non muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, just keep in mind that the the, the systemic therapy, including uh, immunotherapy, uh, not BCG, but immunotherapy such as immune checkpoint inhibitor or target therapy, as we mentioned, or the Fertnib, uh and other in the trial, they are all actually recent uh, only approved and used for patients with more advanced disease, um, and uh, especially in patients with advanced uh, metastatic bladder cancer, but not in mu- non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Non-muscle invasive bladder cancer um, are still uh, treated primarily with TURBT surgery uh, and uh, intravesical chemotherapy, or uh, BCG. So they're still uh, being in. Uh, currently uh, investigated uh, that whether uh, there's any role of immunotherapy, such as immune checkpoint inhibitor in in this setting, but we have not really reached the stage that um, we can talk about target therapy in those patient populations.
3: And Dr. Kashkin, do you want anything as well? Uh, Yeah, I I just want to second, um, again, that uh, right now targeted therapy is um, only available for uh, as a standard of care option for patients who have, on the one hand, metastatic disease, and on the other hand, this specific mutation uh, in, in the uh, in FGFR, which uh, um, is uh, discovered by basically testing the tumor, and that's only about 20% of patients with with metastatic disease. Otherwise, it may be available as part of a clinical trial um uh, also mostly mostly in a metastatic setting um or actually at this point i believe almost exclusively in a metastatic setting so um it, it really depends uh i would say in a disease stage um as uh, as as to why um you know uh, kind of the providers would would address this class of agents or not
1: well thank you Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been fantastic. This has been a wonderful call. I want to thank all of you who also have been asking such great questions or have been listening um, on this call. I do want to remind you that this is a one-hour program and that in planning a program like this, we um, recognize that you all may have many questions that, of course, um, go far beyond the scope of the one hour, that many of you still have questions that you'd like to ask. So we do um, the first a place that we often ask you to take your questions to is of course your healthcare team. They know you the best. They of course have all the information about you, your medical records. However, um, I know many of you do like to seek second opinions, and so um, during this call today um, and, and all the materials that have been sent out about the program, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network has a, a, really just specializes in bladder cancer as an advocacy group and has lots of information. And so um, I definitely encourage you to go to their website, call them, and actually at the end of the program, um, you'll be getting an evaluation form, but the evaluation form isn't just an evaluation form. It also will include all the resources we can think of that we either mentioned during the call today or that we think would be useful to you um, as participants in this program today. The other place that we do recommend that people call is the National Cancer Institute. Um, They have an 800 number, um, but they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature where you can post a question and they will have their information specialists address your question. Um, And they're five days a week, and they are um, on the West Coast, uh, business hours. So that means that depending where you are in the country or world, it's a kind of a really nice resource to have um, at your fingertips in addition to BCAN as well. Um, And so I hope that's helpful to you. Most importantly, as we're about to conclude the program today, we don't want any one of you to think that you're alone in coping with bladder cancer. Um, There are lots of resources out there. Many of them are free. I know we talked about the cost of care for bladder cancer, and I actually, I just want to mention that Cancer Care has a Copay Foundation that does have funds for the treatment of bladder cancer, and we are not the only Copay Foundation that has funds for bladder cancer. So, if you call our Copay Foundation, they will be able to actually let you know about our resources that we have for you, and then if there are other resources out there, they'll tell you about them too. So that's just, and all the other all the other Copay Foundations are like that as well. So you might want to start with that one um, just to begin with. Um, but I think that um, but in addition, uh, just in terms of just having someone to talk to, um, not feeling that you really don't have any um, any resources for yourself, it's really important that you know that there are resources for you and that many of these organizations, and there really are hundreds of them out there, um, we have a number of them on our brochure listed as, as um, cancer organizations. Many of them, some of them have 24-hour call centers that you can call any time of the day or night um, or visit their websites, um, and they're all available to you to help and, and be a support to you. Um, and we do have two programs coming up that could be useful to you. One of them is called Preventing Chemotherapy-Induced Nausea and Vomiting, and that's coming up on Monday, October 28th. Um, same time frame, and the other one is Care for Your Bones During and After Cancer Treatment, Tips to Improve Your Bone Health, which is good for everyone to hear about, Um, and that program is coming up um, actually um, on Monday, November 18th, um, same time frame as this one. So those are some programs coming up, and you'll be hearing more about all the other programs that we offer. Again, I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.